0: long written down for us preserved kept by your spirit ultimately but your spirit working through men and in the course and the details of history you have preserved this living and active word for us our lord jesus christ you are the living word of god and here we have this written word of god which in it we hear your voice we behold the revelation of your glory We have your promises, we have your instructions, we have your majestic being and glory displayed for us. We have everything that we need for life and for godliness and we pray that you would do your work in us through your word and by your spirit, these two inextricable realities that you work by your word and by your spirit in us conforming us to the image of Christ teaching us what that looks like and how to live it out. And so it is to that end, we pray, particularly as we look again this morning at the issue of marriage and particularly the role of the husband. Oh God, how we need constantly to hear what it means to be a husband that brings glory to you. We pray that you would shape us and mold us, we who have that role, to be that for your pleasure and for your glory, oh Christ. And it is to this end that we pray. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3. Chapter we're becoming very familiar with. We're in verse 7 this morning. And instructions to husbands. Instructions to husbands. And let me begin uh, our look at this verse this morning by making mention of this reality. That so often we have a tendency to see... God's commands and instructions in light of their applications to others. Would you agree with that? That we tend to see God's commands to, in light of who else needs to hear that command and who else needs to be obeying that command. Uh, We can, even as God's people, sometimes process God's commands through a lens of a self-righteous and a self-serving attitude. We have that tendency. Far more concerned with the obedience of others than our own. Now, we are commanded to point out sin in one another's life. We are commanded to come alongside a struggling brother or anyone who's caught in a trespass. We are commanded to do that. In fact, doing that is an expression of humble love. It takes a great amount of humility uh, to do that in in the right way. But we're to do this rightly only after we've come to grips with those truths in our own lives. When we've been humbled by our own failures in those same areas. When we've been broken by our own sin in those same areas. Are we in a position to rightly or at least righteously go to another sinning brother and address whatever area needs addressing in their own lives. And so God gives us many instructions along these lines in Galatians 6. You are caught in a trespass. You are spiritual Go to such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself as well, lest you be tempted in the same thing. Jesus gave that instruction to the self-righteous leaders of Israel. Before you are concerned about the speck in your brother's eye, remember, take the log out of your own eye. In other words, be more grieved and aware of your own offenses to God before you would be concerned about another's offenses. So we do this in a variety of ways. Uh, Have you ever done this? Uh, so-and-so should be listening to this sermon. Don't act righteous. Come on, you pious people. You you know that you've done that. I've done that. You've heard a sermon where sin is being confronted and you're thinking somebody else needs to hear that sermon. And that may be so, but we need to hear it for ourselves first and evaluate how we're doing in that area. And one of the areas where we tend to do this as much as any, as probably more than any, is in God's commands to husbands and wives. God's commands to husbands and wives. In other words, in his commands to husbands and wives, there is a tendency of one spouse to be more concerned about what the other should be doing and less concerned about our own responsibilities in the marriage relationship and God's commands to us. And then behind this, really, you could say there is that command, don't return evil for evil. Often we feel justified, just kind of looking at it broadly, justified to treat someone wrongly because they treated us wrongly. And so we say, well, they did this to us. If you have children, you've heard that lots of times. If you're around adults, you've heard that lots of times. I can't do this to them or they don't deserve it because they did X, Y, and Z. But God gives us commands individually that are to grip our hearts and that are our own responsibility to live out for His honor and glory. And so in marriage, this finds a particular, particular kind of conflict or a tendency to... Be more concerned about our spouse than ourselves. Uh, One common area uh, that this can happen is in Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We won't spend time there, I just mention it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul gives this really, in this cultural context at the time, would have been a somewhat radical instruction when he tells them, husband and wives, to stop depriving uh, each one uh, another physically except for a time of agreement. He says right before that... The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. The the radicalness of that instruction is that the husband was not given the full rights within the marriage, but is given rights that the wife is also equal to, namely that for pleasure in marriage of sexual satisfaction. So often, however, that can be used in marriage as a club to make demands on the other one. See, your body is not your own. It's mine. You have to do what I say. And in fact, the whole intent of that command is just the opposite. That we are to see our own bodies not as our own, but under the authority of our spouse. You see how we can twist these things around. And that happens in marriage all the time. But probably no place does it happen more greatly or more grievously than in the area of submission. And of course, we spent lots of time on submission because that's the text we find ourselves in. And particularly that submission to us as believers in all areas of life, to civil authority, to government, to those who are over us just in the course of this world, from slaves to masters. In our context, that could be employees to employers. And here, in 1 Peter 3, of wives to husbands, of wives to husbands. And so often, that idea of submission by husbands is used, again, as a tool, sometimes even as a weapon. Your role is to submit to me, and authority is used more as a means of control rather than of service, which is the reason that God gave it in the first place. Too often, it's used by husbands as a tool to make demands rather than compelling us to serve and be the kind of man that makes submission easy and desirable for our wives. We should be someone who is easy to submit to because of the, our character... ...and because of the gentleness of our disposition... ...because of our care for those God has given to us as wives. Now, so God is going to address this head-on in First Peter 3, 7. Noting this, that the essence of being a godly husband... ...simply is to understand and to honor your wife. To understand and to honor your wife. Now, Peter is going to address this through two simple commands... Now they should be taken as imperatives, commands, and a warning, a warning of failure to live this way with our wives. Now it's only one verse, so let me read it, and then we'll look at these two exhortations, and this warning simply this morning. So First Peter chapter three, verse seven: "You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. So that your prayers will not be hindered. Again, one verse, simple command. It is a command to husbands in how we are to treat and live with our wives to the glory of God. Now, before we get into the first exhortation, let me just briefly make a few observations. Peter is here addressing clearly a new class, husbands, that little word that's translated for us in the New American Standard, in the same way, is also could be translated likewise. He does that consistently, uses that term to introduce a new group of people that he is addressing. And in this case, he's addressing husbands. Husbands. He's moved on from the idea of submission, which was exclusively addressed to the wives. Husbands are never called to submit to their wives in that role of husband and wife. But the husband is here commanded to exercise this authority that he has in the marriage relationship in a particular way that brings honor to his wife, to, bring, to treat her with tenderness and honor. Although this is much shorter in length, it is a statement that is beautiful and packed with a profound, profound instruction to husbands. Now, one observation then is this, or a second. Peter is addressing here believing husbands. In verse 1, he was addressing believing wives. In verse 7, he's addressing believing husbands. This is a letter to the church. Now, that's important to notice. note for this reason, is that only a believing husband will able, be able to feel the weight of this command by Peter, ultimately by the Holy Spirit who gave us Holy Scripture. This is something that will be a desire of every godly husband. If you do not know Christ, if you do not have the Spirit of God in you, you will try in vain to live this out to the glory of God. You will end up in constant frustration and you will have very little motivation to do so. But the believing husband who has the indwelling Holy Spirit is provoked and compelled to listen to this word and to bring our life into conformity with it. And the same as it was with wives. Only a believing wife with the power of the Holy Spirit, with a regenerated heart, with the indwelling Holy Spirit, can have the ability to submit to a husband who is not a believer and may even mock her and make life difficult. And so it is here with a husband. Every command of God requires the grace of God by the Holy Spirit. Another observation is simply this, that Peter was a married man in 1 Corinthians 9. Paul addresses Peter as one who brought along a believing wife. He was a married man. And so Peter uniquely, uh, in a way that the Apostle Paul couldn't, demonstrated this and was to exemplify this, own instruction, or this instruction in his own life. So what he lays down here for all husbands, he obeyed as a husband. And he demonstrated in his life. Let me make a third and final observation is this. And this is only because some of you might have different Translations. Uh, The NASB and the ESV translate this in slightly different ways. It doesn't affect the overall meaning, but it will be particularly um, noticeable as we look at it specifically. Uh, In verse 7, the ESV translates it this way. Some of you have this. Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. And this is, again, just simple. I just want to note it in case you get confused. This makes understanding and showing honor based on the woman as the weaker vessel. So both understanding and honor based on the woman as a weaker vessel. And being an heir, the grounds of the whole exhortation of the entire verse. Whereas the New American Standard says, Live with your wives in an understanding way since she is a weaker vessel. And she is, since she is a woman, show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And this makes understanding based on the woman who is a weaker vessel and showing her honor based on the fact that she is a fellow heir of the grace of life. Now, in the end, as I said, in the overall point, it doesn't matter that greatly. Uh, only in some specifics in terms of how we'll approach it. Uh, I think the New American Standard, more accurate, reflects... If you were to, if I had a screen here, I'd show you a visual of the way that the grammar is It's very nicely paralleled to one another. And so Peter is here giving two clear instructions, two clear exhortations, and then the explanation of that exhortation. So namely, live with your wife in an understanding way because she is a weaker vessel, because she is a woman, give her honor as a fellow heir because uh, she is one who is a fellow heir of the grace of life. Now that being said, let's look at the first exhortation then. And it is this, in verse 7. Husbands, treat your wives with compassionate understanding. That's his exhortation. Husband, treat your wives with compassionate understanding. He says again, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman. More literally, and I think helpfully, uh, it could be translated this way. Live together according to knowledge as with a weaker vessel with a woman. Live together according to knowledge, as with a weaker vessel, as with a woman. That's the idea here. Now, due to usages in other places, some take that term live together to be almost exclusively, you might run across this, to refer to the sexual relationship. And the idea then, uh, for those who take it that way, which is not the majority, but some do, would be a word to husbands to say, live together with your wife faithfully, purely, chastely live to her in a way in which she is the one who alone shares these affections as her husband. However, that's, again, not the best way, nor is it the most common way. The grammar strongly suggests that the following phrase uh, produces Peter's intent, namely that to live with her in an understanding way is because she is a weaker vessel, which speaks to something about the constitution and not to the sexual relationship. So we are to live with our wives in an understanding way or according to knowledge. Now this is an incredibly important verse that really strikes at the very heart of the gendered distinction of male and female. And a failure to understand this really is the cause for much conflict within marriage. Much conflict within marriage. A failure to live with one another with understanding. A failure to live with one another with understanding. And particularly, in this case, husbands who fail to rightly understand their wives. Understand their wives. Now, what does he mean here? He particularly attaches this understanding. He says, as with, in the new the American standard, someone weaker. Literally, as with a weaker vessel. As with a weaker vessel. With a woman. What in the world does he mean here? Well, it's helpful to make a few observations. And I won't go through all of these, but that term weaker, that's really the sticking point. What does it mean to say weaker? Well, if you just were to trace that term out, it has, I counted at least nine different nuances as I went to uh, each of the uses of it in the New Testament. Nine different nuances, nine different ways that that term weaker is used. It speaks of physical weakness or sickness, spiritual weakness against temptation. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. It's used metaphorically of how the gospel is perceived by the proud. The gospel is weakness to the proud Greeks who exalted in their intellect and in their supposed knowledge, their empty knowledge. Sometimes it's translated as helplessness. as when he says in Romans 5, 6 that we were before Christ helpless and God rescued us in Christ in that helpless condition. Same term here. He, Paul uses it sarcastically of himself to describe his ministry in contrast to the Corinthians who were very proud and boasting in their spiritual ability and their insight. And he says, by comparison, he as an apostle is weak. And he uses it again in a variety of other ways. But in all of the usages, there's one basic idea that runs through all of it in that term. And it is this. It's the idea of vulnerability. The idea of Vulnerability. Someone who is weak, in whatever way it's used, is in some shape or form in a vulnerable position. They're in a vulnerable position. They are in a position of weakness. Now the second term, we should note here then, so we want to understand this phrase, is the term vessel. Vessel. Again, that doesn't come to. You might have a note in your margin in the New American Standard. Some of you may have translations that actually say vessel. That's the term that he uses here. And it's important to note that for this reason. Is in scripture, this idea of vessel is a term used to both men and women. And so even though here he says, husbands live with your wife... ...as a weaker vessel, in an understanding way as a weaker vessel... ...he is, by the use of that term, acknowledging that both of them, before God... ...live with a sense of human frailty and fragility. That both men and women are vessels and have a measure of weakness before God. So even though he identifies this here particularly with the woman men just as much fall into that category of having a certain weakness just by the frailty of our own humanity. Human weakness and frailty indicated in the imagery then is not limited women, but men and women alike. One more point, and then we'll define this. is He says here that you are to live with, your, in an understanding way, someone weaker, a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, or as with a woman, or with a woman. Are different ways you could take that. And this is important for this reason. He's noting here... ...by this, it's an adjective... ...something very specifically. He's noting the quality of femininity. He's really looking at those things... ...that are characteristic... ...to the female gender. Yes, expressed in a relationship... ...through the role of being a wife... ...but he's looking at femininity in itself. One made this comment... ...Peter looks to the characteristic nature of womanhood... Or femininity and suggests that a wife's femaleness should itself elicit honor from her husband. Now the reality is that femininity, as with masculinity under the conditions of the fall, have both strengths and weaknesses. Both positive and negative aspects. So here it is that this address to a woman... Is here not, noticing, not noting particularly that there is a weakness in femininity, but noting that under the conditions of the fall, those things that are characteristic of, feminine, of uh, woman, of femininity, can be taken advantage of. That's the idea. That's the idea here. So what does Peter mean? What does he mean here then to call a wife or a woman the weaker vessel? The weaker vessel. Well, as we've noted well before, what it doesn't mean is this. It doesn't mean that your wife or a woman is in any way inferior in terms of intellect, in terms of strength, in terms of spiritual accessibility to Christ, in terms of spiritual maturity, in terms of spiritual wisdom, in terms of spiritual giftedness, in terms of spiritual character. In none of those ways, and as a matter of fact, often the wife outshines the husband in those areas. That's not uncommon at all. I can say that in my own marriage. That's the case for us. And I lean on no one and have no greater respect for anyone than the wisdom of my own wife. And her insight into situations. It doesn't mean in any way that there is less maturity or wisdom or spiritual strength or any of those things. It does not mean that. So then what does it mean? What does it mean to say the wife is a weaker vessel? Well, there's a couple of possibilities. One, and this is, many would emphasize this aspect. To say she is a weaker vessel is to say that she is weaker physically. That she's physically weaker. And because she is physically weaker, there are more opportunities for the woman to be exploited and to be taken advantage of. That's actually one of the most common ways. Another way that weakness could be taken here is referring to her vulnerability within the home and within society. Within the home, because she takes the role of submission, which leaves her open to more susceptible to abuse. And within society in general, because the women typically have less rights, as with men less protection. And they would, they would have the idea then of the husband's need to guard her from abuse, mistreatment, being taken advantage of, and so forth. It could also refer. I say there's four. It could also refer, thirdly, to a spiritual vulnerability to deception and to false teaching, a spiritual vulnerability to deception and false teaching, or it could lastly, here refer to the emotional makeup of women in general, which are often more sensitive than men. One said that while this is something which is a great strength. It nonetheless means that wives are more often likely to be hurt deeply by conflict within a marriage or by inconsiderate behavior on the part of the husband. In other words, there's more emotional damage. There's more hurt. There's more pain that women tend to be more susceptible to than men. That's at least how one takes it. So it could refer to physical strength It could refer merely to the position in marriage. It could refer to spiritual vulnerability to deception. Or it could refer to the emotional makeup of women in general. How then are we to understand this? What does it mean to say she's weaker? I think it's probably best to see certain elements of all of those in some level. But primarily the first and the second. Namely this. That women... And wives in the marriage relationship are weaker in this way, in two primary ways. One, physically and positionally. Physically and positionally. They are weaker. And require the particular sensitivity and care of husbands to protect, nurture, and honor. Now this wasn't a totally foreign concept in that time. Although it was a minority idea. I've mentioned this author before. He's an ancient author of this time reflecting certain strain of thinking that was present, certainly to these readers. His name is Plutarch, and he said this. He made this statement in one of his works. The husband ought to show no greater respect for anybody than for his wife. And that's a pagan writer. The husband ought to show no greater respect for anybody than his wife. However, that was not in the main how these relationships worked out. That was not in the main how women were viewed at this time. More accurate to say, or at least more broadly it's accurate to say, as one did, paganism always tends to abuse women on this account. Her rights are reduced, often greatly. Her status is lowered, often shamefully. Heavy loads are put on her. She is made man's plaything or man's slave. The fact that she is weaker is always exploited. And that actually would be the larger ...thing that we see or characteristic that we see displayed throughout the history of man is exploitation, abuse. Being physically weaker, women and wives sometimes have been subject to all kinds of abuse. Of course, most commonly what we think of is rape, physical abuse within marriage, sexual abuse... ...or just living under the threat of someone who is stronger than she is. Someone whom she cannot physically confront... Now, there's always exceptions to this, of course, but that is generally true. And a husband is to understand that there is, in that reality, a certain kind of vulnerability that a woman feels. There's a certain kind of vulnerability that a woman has to someone who is stronger than she is, who is physically stronger than she is. Now, we have in our culture, we've mentioned recently when we talked about feminism and its effect... As you know, that recent, you've probably heard it in the the news talk about it, the idea of toxic masculinity. Toxic masculinity. And that is to look at masculinity and all of its abuses, which are some of what I just mentioned, and say that it is the very idea of masculinity itself that is wrong. It's spoken against the strength and the natural instinct to protect women is so often abused and therefore masculinity itself is it said, needs to be eliminated. However, that strength, that ability that God has given men, that stature of strength over women that God has given, in its right understanding and use, should have that natural, compelling instinct to protect, to protect, to nurture, to care for. That should be the natural instinct of men ...in their understanding the vulnerability of their wives weaker... ...to treat them with kindness and with gentleness... ...as to someone who is weaker... ...who would look to them for protection... ...who would look to them for care. That is indeed a reality. And that's why it's really a sad commentary on our culture and any culture... ...that would say our demand for equality... ...as ignorant and misguided as it is within the ideology of feminism or what at least is popularly feminism, not every branch of feminism, is to say that in order to pursue this idea of equality, ignoring God's distinctions of gender, that we want to send our women to combat. We want them to be in a foxhole. We want them to shoot guns and see the blood and gore and the violence of war the same as men. That's before our government and our military. But that's just the opposite of what Peter is emphasizing here, though in a marriage relationship, not in the context of war, there are innate realities of gender that are expressed in marriage that are expressed in every part of culture. And that is namely this, that God has given men with a certain strength and a certain characteristics that would make them the ones that should get shot at and that should go to war. They are the ones who should give their life in protection of those who are weaker It's a sad, sad reversal of God's good design to put a woman in a position that she was not designed for. And so here it is within the marriage relationship that one part of this instruction is to recognize, husbands, that our wives are physically weaker. And our strength was never meant to abuse, to intimidate, or in any way make our wives feel threatened or unsafe, but just the opposite. The safest place our wives should feel is in our presence as husbands. The safest place that they should feel is in the home where they are treated with gentleness and where they are treated with kindness. A second way that this instruction comes to us then is in the woman being positionally weaker. That is, in this relationship of marriage, the role of submission, which is a certain kind of vulnerability to it, is assigned to the wife. Is assigned to the wife. And, of course, we note that submission is anything but weakness. We've already noted that before, that, in fact, to be submissive, and particularly under these conditions that he's addressing in 1 Peter chapter 3, takes, in fact, a great amount of strength. It takes the greatest amount of strength and courage, of spiritual strength and of faith, the largeness of faith it takes for a woman to live submissively in obedience to Christ in these conditions of an unbelieving husband. Or of any husband, even for a believer is disobedient to the word. Although, particularly here, he's referring to an unbelieving husband. It takes a great amount of strength. And of course, the example that he just gave of that strength is Christ himself. Who did not revile, though being reviled, he didn't revile in return. While being threatened, he uttered no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin. And live to righteousness. That's the kind of strength that's displayed in the submissive wife. A largeness of faith. A depth of faith. And a strength of faith that shines with glory. But nonetheless, she is in a position of vulnerability. She is in a position of vulnerability. And husbands, living with our wives in an understanding way means that we recognize that weakness of position. And too often, again, that is something abused. Women are made to bear twice the load in a marriage too often. Emotionally, relationally, and practically, they are called to do far, men, far more than men who see this role, or the role of the wife more as a means of serving them rather than treating their wives with self-denying service and sacrifice. One author noting this petition said this, and it's helpful, I'll read it. The wife may be considered weak because of her role as wife. She, by marrying, has accepted a position where she submits herself to a husband. Such a position is vulnerable and open to exploitation. The husband is commanded not to take advantage of the woman's vow of submission. Her acceptance of a position of weakness and submission to him is a call for her husband for consideration and thoughtful support. Consideration and thoughtful support. And again, I just would make an application here to single women is when you enter into marriage, you are entering into that role. You need to know, and I'm, I know I kind of harp on this, but I have three daughters. You need to understand that the priority in any consideration of marriage is the character of that man. That is something you need to see, you need to see tested, and you need to observe its reality. To enter into marriage foolishly or based on emotion or being in love with the idea of love is the height of foolishness. And will not end well. It will bring much sorrow and heartache. That could have been avoided. So from that side. The woman is entering into this relationship. And that's why character and godliness. Is of the utmost concern. When you consider that. From the husband's side. What Peter is addressing here. Is he's saying that is a call. For us to live with understanding. With knowledge. Gnosis is the idea here. Is the term. It condoles for us to be understanding. That means this, that we are to be intentionally or we are to intentionally seek to understand our wife in a way that we can better serve her and meet her needs. It's simple. That's the exhortation. Men, understand your wives in a way that you can better serve her and meet her needs. As I mentioned before, so much conflict and hurt comes in marriage from a failure to apply this on both sides. But there's a natural tendency of a husband and wife to assume this, that their experience of life, that their perception of life, that their responses to life are exactly the same for both. So a husband treats his wife as if she should act like a man. And a wife can tend to treat her husband as if he should act like a woman. Because there's a lack of understanding, a lack of effort into understanding the other's position. And so therefore so much conflict comes from that very thing alone men and women often process things differently they bring different perspectives to a situation and men our failure too often is not to appreciate or take the time to understand our wife's unique perspectives and struggles there's too often a tendency to be critical and to judge when she does not respond as you think that she should when she does not respond as a man. When she doesn't process emotions in the same way that you would process emotions. In other words, when she acts like a woman and not like a guy. And we are to understand she's not, a, she's not a man. She's a woman. And she has this precious quality of femininity which as glorious and wonderful and as capable of displays of spiritual strength and the glory of Christ as it's able to produce, is also a position that puts her in many ways in a vulnerable, with a vulnerability that we need to take care and concern for. So a simple question is this. Husbands, how much effort do you put into understanding your wife? How much effort do you put into understanding your wife? How much effort do you put into knowing her perspectives, her struggles, her hopes, her desires, her thinking? Could you, if you were asked right now, those of you who are married, name what your wife struggles with? Know what her perspective on your circumstances in life is? To know what her particular struggles are? Could you do that? Have you asked her? You need to ask. This is just a a footnote. I would suggest that husbands and wives need to regularly, and husbands, you need to lead this, need to regularly have times to meet or at least make a regular part of your conversation to try to understand your wife, to listen before you speak. Now we'll continue on, but let's look at the second part. Husbands, the second exhortation is this. The first is live with your wife in an understanding way because she is a weaker vessel. She is in a position very often of vulnerability. Secondly, husbands, show your wife honor as a fellow inheritor of salvation. He says, uh, as with, since she is a woman, uh, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. As a fellow heir of the grace of life. Now this is a profoundly comprehensive statement that defines the husband's attitude toward and treatment of his wife. Husbands, you are to esteem her. You are to treasure her. You are to value her as a precious gift of God placed in your loving care. And not only that, it is a care that God has placed her in that he has an utmost concern for as her father. That you do it well. That you do it well. He loves her more than you ever could, and he is intimately and intensely concerned with how well you are caring for his precious daughter, even though you are a son. It's his precious daughter, it's a daughter of God that you are married to. Now, what does this mean? Again, what does he mean here? Well, first of all, it means this it means then that this isn't merely great shows. We just had Valentine's Day. Sometimes that's the only time a husband does something gets that is why he knows his wife appreciates that one day out of the year. You write a really sweet card and then you write another one next year. It's event oriented. But the language that he uses here speaks of a continual activity. It's a continual activity. In other words, showing your wife honor is not something that you do on a special holiday, special events, birthdays, or whatever. It is a continual pattern and habit of your life to honor her. It's a disposition of your heart and your character to honor and esteem her within. That's what a husband is called to. To honor and esteem and value her in his heart. Again, it's not simply an event It's not just the way you speak to her in public and around other people who will judge you. You're concerned about their judgment. It's how you speak to her in private behind closed doors. Even more, it's how you think of her in the privacy of your own thoughts and attitudes and your intentions. That's where spiritual life flows out of the mind and it flows out of the heart. Watch over your heart with all diligence. And that is no less true in the attitude, husbands, that we have toward our wives. Do you honor and esteem your wife? Do you confess your sin for failing to honor and to esteem your wife? And to value her and to treasure her? You should, when we compare ourselves knowing that Christ is the model and his love for the church... We have a never-ending opportunity this side of heaven to be humbled by our failure to do this and need to grow. I was going to make a joke, but I won't. Do you humble? Do you love your wife? Do you honor her in your heart and in your thoughts? Again, it's the way you treat her in the home. Not just simply how you treat her before others. It's the way you think about her and the attitude you have toward her at all times. And he says you're to honor her here. And he describes why, or the the character of this honor, he says, is as a fellow heir of the grace of life. As a fellow heir of the grace of life. This honor is to be consistent with her being a fellow heir of the grace of life. Now again, there's two ways that this is generally understood. One is this. What does he mean by grace of life? What does it mean that she's an heir of a grace of life? Well, some take this, and even some popular teachers, take this to mean that grace of life refers to the covenant of marriage. In other words, it's a, it's a grace, a gracious relationship that God has given to two people this side of heaven. It is a grace of this life on earth. It's a kindness of God to this life on earth. One uh, who holds that refers to it this way. He says it refers not to eternal life, but to the true and intimate friendship that belongs only to those who are possessors of God's most blessed blessed gift in this life, marriage. Another uh, position, or the other way to take this, is this: is that it refers to her fellow status as an inheritor of salvation, and as an inheritor of salvation. And I think the second is most likely in this context, and it is the way that it is most commonly understood. One, marriage is never referred this way, uh, if it was a grace of life, anywhere else in Scripture. But even more than that, the idea of inheritance is a key idea in Peter, and it's distinctly soteriological. In other words, it refers distinctly to our salvation, to our redemption in Christ. He began the letter in this way. That we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. He says the same thing again at verse 9 of chapter 3. That we were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. The idea of inheritance is a richly theological term, a richly theological concept. It is to say that we are those who have by possession now in promise, are looking forward to what we will have by possession in reality at the end of the day, and that is the full realization of everything that has been granted to us in Christ Jesus. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We are inheritors of the fullness of redemption. We are inheritors of the full realities of sonship. We are inheritors of the full realities of the kingdom of God. And that's the idea here. She is a fellow inheritor of those things with you. A fellow inheritor. And indeed, since this is a believing life, our gracious living is is imported with all of the concepts of her being a part then of the body of Christ. Of the body of Christ. Sometimes we can treat our wives as though they deserve less patience, less kindness, less honor, less service than those we would give to in our ministry in the church. We can treat them as if they were less than other Christians and deserve less than other Christians. And in fact, it's just the opposite. She is a fellow heir of the grace of life. She is as much a child of God and a part of the body of Christ as the believing husband. Calvin, picking up on this, made this helpful comment. He says, when we consider that we are members of the same body, we learn to bear with one another and mutually to cover our infirmities. This is what Paul means when he says that greater honor is given to the weaker members, even because we are more careful in protecting them from shame. Husbands, do you protect your wife from shame and anything that would dishonor her? Do you protect her reputation? Do you protect her emotions? Do you protect her honor? You are to honor her as one who shares the same realities of salvation. She has the same promises of God as you do. She has the same love and protection of the Father as you do. She has the same sanctifying spirit working in her as you do. And even more, she has received the same grace of God in Christ as you have received. And so you are to live in grace. Grace should mark your marriage. To have a graceless marriage of two professing believers is a contradiction. Does your marriage reflect grace? Forgiveness? Does your home reflect that? Look, we're all going to sin. We're in the same home together. We have two sinners. We're going to mistreat each other. We're going to be growing spiritually And in the the process of that growth, we're going to do things that we would not do at a later point. We're going to see them as wrong. But does grace operate in your home and in your marriage? If anything should mark a Christian marriage, it's this. It's forgiveness. It's love. It's tenderness. It's every part of the fruit of the Spirit in a child of God to have a graceless marriage denies the gospel and it denies one's profession of faith our marriages then are to be marked by grace we are receivers and fellow, fellow heirs of the grace of life have received forgiveness of sin have received every promise in Christ have received the hope that extends beyond the grave and those are the kind of motivations that should be operative in our marriages to be gracious marriages husbands do you treat your wives with grace, with grace. Are our homes marked by grace? A key theme in our lives and of Peter is that our lives as Christians bear witness and affirm the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at its heart, it is a message of grace. We live as believers in an environment of grace, of God's unmerited favor to those who deserve wrath. God's unmerited and overflowing goodness to those who were by nature rebels and deserved judgment. That's what God shows to us. And so we both have received that. And so then what should mark a husband's care for his wife is grace. Is grace. The key theme throughout Peter, I won't read through all the verses, the grace of life. So, how do you honor your wife? How do you honor your wife? well let me give some ways first negatively of how you dishonor your wife how can you dishonor your wife well and this can apply to some you dishonor your wife if you view pornography you dishonor your wife if you put before your eyes women who are not your wife in a way that you could lust after them and that's an issue isn't it you dishonor your wife it shames her it belittles her If a husband views pornography on the internet and is satisfied with someone else who is not his wife, whom God has given to him for that alone. We dishonor our wives when we don't lighten their burdens, but we add to them because of our selfishness. We dishonor our wives when we don't lighten their burdens. We dishonor our wives when we don't seek to understand and help them in their struggles, but expect them to always be meeting ours. We dishonor our wives when we don't seek to meet her needs, but rather focus her on her meeting our own needs. Those are ways that we dishonor. Let me give you one passage. Actually, I wanted to mention this. I was frustrated uh, after we looked at Ephesians because I had failed to mention this, and I realized it later. But in Ephesians, he says this. And I want to connect it here in Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, he says... Uh, speaking of husbands' care for their wives and how we're to love as Christ loves the church. And he mentions Christ gave himself up, that he might sanctify her, cleanse her, present the church to himself in all her glory, being holy and blameless. He says in verse 28, So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Now that's a striking verse. First, if you read that, because it has a certain sense of self-centeredness to it, doesn't it? Right? Serve your wife so you can be served is the idea. And, and sometimes, uh, through an immature spirituality, uh, we can take it and treat it that way. As though the whole motivation were simply ourselves of how then we can serve our wife so that we ourselves can be served. But the idea is actually just the opposite. The idea here to love our own wives as our own bodies. For he who loves his own wife loves himself. No one have ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ also does the church. Is actually a call to self-denial. It's a call to self-denial. It's a call to say, men, don't be concerned with yourself and with your own needs but rather as you would be concerned with your own needs and naturally are be concerned with those needs of your wife and nourish and cherish her you can't have me time in your man cave and nourish and cherish your wife it just doesn't happen you can't say that i'm caring for myself by having my time and an obsession with my hobbies or my interests and be fulfilling this command to nourish and to cherish your wife as Christ loves the church. It's actually a call to be self-denying and not self-serving. It's to demonstrate what Paul called us for to in Philippians 2. Consider others as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. And again, single women, this is an essential quality that you must see in any future spouse that he honors you. And that doesn't simply mean opening doors. I, that could include that. But does he honor you spiritually? Does he protect your purity? In our age, that would be one of the biggest ones. Does he guard your heart and your mind? Does he protect you in a way that you would be kept from sin? Does he treat you as a precious one who is not to be violated or corrupted in any sense because you are a part of the bride of Christ before you are anything to him? Does he treat you that way? Men, do we treat our wives that way? He honors your integrity. He honors your purity. He honors your value and worth as a person and a sister in the Lord. And that's the only kind of that a woman who is single, who professes Christ, should be interested in. And let me just, as a footnote here, that means on the other side, that women, that's the kind single women of man you should be attracting. And that's going to be reflected in the clothes you wear, and the places that you go, and the things that you do. A godly man is going to be attracted to purity. And a godly woman is going to be attracted to a man who guards her purity. So men, do you honor your wife? Or maybe I should ask this. This is a little more piercing Does your wife feel honored? Does she feel honored by you? Now, instead of answering that yourself, because we can very easily, smugly say, well, of course she does. I know my wife. She must get up and thank God every day for his, his his great mercy to her. I look in the mirror every day, you might say, and say, what a... What a blessing God has given me to serve my wife so well by bringing her into my care and letting her be honored by me. More seriously, does your wife feel honored? Does she feel honored? Do you ever ask her? I would challenge you men and husbands to go home to your wives and ask your wife, do you feel honored? Do you feel honored by me? Do you feel treasured by me? Do you feel valued by me and in our marriage and in our relationship? Do you feel that way? Do you perceive my relationship to you in that way? And then, more importantly, or equally importantly, you need to listen to her answer with humility and without self-defense because very often you might hear things that you don't want to hear and that you weren't expecting to hear. And the first thing you're going to want to do is be self-defensive and proud. But you need to ask that with a sincere desire to be exposed as wrong in some areas. To have failure come to light. And sincere humility to acknowledge that you have failed. You know, David prayed in Psalm 139, Search me and know me and see if there be any hurtful way in me. Well, there is a sense when we ask that of our wives. Now, that's the Holy Spirit working inside of us. But we ask our wives, Is there anything in me that is dishonoring to you that you find defective? Is there any way that I could do better in treasuring you? How do you feel treasured? How do you feel honored? How do you feel served? I can remember early on in our marriage getting kind of frustrated because I was doing things that I thought were serving Trish, and then she'd get kind of frustrated. Can I say that? She got kind of, and I was like... I mean, I'm making sacrifices here. I mean, I'm God's blessing in your life and you're treating me this way. And, and this is kind of a simple thing. It was a lot of practical things in this case, but it was, she says, but those aren't the things that I really need. And then she listed out for me the things that she really wanted, that she really wanted. In that case, it was something simple. Uh, I was doing the dishes and that kind of stuff. And what she really wanted is for me to watch the kids so she could get out of the house and go do things. And that's simple, and there are much more serious ways that's worked out in our marriage. But the question is, you may be doing things that you think you're doing fine that you don't know until you ask her. You ask her. And you need to do it out of a sincere desire to honor Christ and change, and to be willing to hear things you don't want to hear, and to make those changes to honor and treasure your wife for Christ's sake. Wives, you need to be honest and respectful as well. It's not a time, if your husband asks you that, to unleash pent-up anger and frustration. To take a time of vengeance and to lash out in retribution. Rather, you are to respect him as your husband. And you are to honor him as one who has just made himself vulnerable to you in order to grow in his relationship with Christ. And you should be tender and careful in how you point these things out. Husbands, you need to receive it whether she is or not. But wives, you need to be careful and make an effort to recognize his wrongs in a way that is redemptive and not condemning neither of you are perfect and it doesn't mean that there won't be disagreements in perspective or that misunderstandings will not be exposed they will be but you must each resolve to be quick to hear and slow to speak to actually try to understand what the other person is saying and not assuming that you know what they mean ask questions ask questions Pray and be quick to confess sin with your attitude when the conversation doesn't go the way you want it to. So there's very personal here, and it's very great opportunity for feeling shame, attack, and embarrassment, and vulnerability and defensiveness. But men, this should be a regular question that we ask our wives and check in with her on. Now, let me note lastly here the warning. So we are to live with them with understanding, understanding their vulnerability as a weaker vessel, physically, positionally. We are to honor them as a fellow heir of the grace of life and inheritor of salvation. And thirdly, husbands, be warned. Your relationship with your wife affects your father's relationship with you. He says, so that your prayers will not be hindered. So that your prayers will not be hindered. This is an incredibly important statement. And I'm going to sum it up in this way, just two, two points. And I'm going to make them quickly. And that's this. This is an incredibly kind and gracious word from God. It shows his kindness to his children and it shows his kindness to wives. It shows the kindness of God is to his children because God's fatherly discipline is designed to keep us from sin and to help us to grow into holiness. God does not wink at our sin. He does not simply chuckle at the earrings of his cute little children. He takes sin very seriously because he knows sin is the greatest threat to our soul, to our joy and to his glory and is the greatest threat to marriage. And so if a husband is not doing this because of sin in his life, sin in how he treats his wife, God is not going to tolerate that. He is going to take action. He's going to intervene. He's going to discipline. Now he can do this in a variety of ways. Sometimes he just lets us suffer the natural consequences of sowing and reaping. Sometimes he intentionally and sovereignly brings frustrations and hardships into our life to bring us to repentance Another way that he does this that Peter addresses here is he removes fellowship and spiritual vitality from his child. Psalm sixty-six, eighteen; Isaiah 59, 2, John 9, 31. We don't have time to look at them. All of these make mention of the fact that sin makes a separation between us and our God. And if we hide and harbor sin knowingly in our heart, God will cut us off From his blessing and from his grace. And if we are truly a child and we hide sin in our heart. Then we would be like David and say that my strength wasted away is with the fever heat of summer. My soul groaned within me all the day long. There was a spiritual misery that attended unconfessed sin. And so it is here to... Husband, simply as a believer, if you sin by not treating your wife well, God will bring discipline into your life. And it is his grace and his kindness. Secondly, it's his kindness to wives. His kindness to wives. Because it's a warning to husbands to keep them in check. To restrain restrain any temptation that we might have to ignore our mistreatment of our wives. And so this is a kindness to those wives. To keep husbands on a leash, as it were. To bring a warning to them that they cannot continue that way without consequence if they don't treat their wives, if we don't, with honor and gentleness. Husbands, you can't think that you can have open fellowship with God, access to his blessing in your life, while failing to treat your wife with honor and understanding. You cannot be rude, disrespectful, insensitive, selfish at home in life or in the bedroom, and think that God is on your side and will not confront you. You can't do that. God won't let it happen. You might as well be talking to a wall until there's repentance and then he will restore and he'll forgive and he'll refresh and he'll revitalize and all of those things. So in the end, God has made marriage a reflection of the gospel, a reflection of redemption. Wives, that means that you submit to your husbands not because they are worthy of submission but because Christ is worthy of obedience and we submit to them because he commands us. It's done voluntarily. It's done with a right heart. Husbands, you, we are called to love our wives as Christ loves the church, to honor them, to understand them, to nourish them, and to cherish them, and to demonstrate God's own love for us in Christ. And in this way, we affirm the gospel, and we bear testimony to the reality of the gospel in our own lives as in the church. The best marriages should be in the church. It is a shame on the Christian church that an unbelieving couple would have a better marriage than a Christian marriage of those who profess Christ. And so we have to understand that if any marriage should be noted by forgiveness and grace, delightfulness and serving, it should be those who name the name of Christ and live in the same home. May God give us grace to do this. And if you don't have that desire, it's not a mark of your home, you might first want to ask if you know Christ, if you truly repented of your sin, and if you know him. Or, if you do know him, that you're holding on to sin that needs to be repented of, and you need to learn to love your wife. May God give us grace to do that. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to us, because we fail in these things. We fail so often, it seems like, so miserably, it seems like, so prone we are to wonder and compromise. Forgive us. Be to us that good shepherd that you are, that... By your rod and your staff, you keep us on the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. That you discipline us when we go astray. That you comfort us and assure us when we walk faithfully with you and obey. And Lord, this is all impossible as every command in scripture. If we do not have the indwelling and abiding Holy Spirit in our life. That has united us to Christ and his righteousness. That has given us a share in his life that has been manifested by showing us the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So help us to gaze on him, to set our mind on the things above, where you are, O Christ, seated at the right hand of God, that we both may live this out as husband and wives, as your children, to your honor and to your glory. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.